Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartzman. And I'm Lara Jan Vega. Jackie Winter Gives You the Business is a weekly podcast from the Jackie Winter Group. We're a creative production and representation studio based in Melbourne and New York City. This podcast is an opportunity for our two studios to come together each week and provide an insight into the creative industry from our unique point of view as a bridge between clients and creatives. Using the internet as our lens, we hope to explore a variety of current events, opinions, and tools to provide thought-provoking conversation for anyone whose job it is to bring creative things to life. Remember that this is an enhanced podcast. If you listen to this using the Pocket Cast, Overcast, or Castro podcatchers, you can directly link to the articles discussed here, as well as get enhanced visual content as we move along. This season, we're rolling on with our extended open tab segments that you know and love. This week, we're taking a look at the most viewed videos on YouTube over the last decade, prolific caricaturist Al Hirschfeld, and how the rise in housing prices and lack of affordable creative spaces has affected the art community. Much like our IRL OpenTabs event, which you can find out more about at opentabs.rodeo, we're digging deep into our JW network of amazing people to contribute their own link and thoughts to each episode, and today we are delighted to welcome Jess Lilly to the studio as this week's special guest. Jess is a busy person, now a creative director at Leo Burnett Melbourne. Jess has had a stellar 18-year advertising career. Along the way, she's worked in documentary film and theater, and she continues her love for grassroots creative communities as a broadcaster at Melbourne radio station Triple R. Recently, Jess and Laura worked together on the Freedom Calendar, a project featuring 20 Jackie Winter artists that raised over $10,000 for the Asylum Seeker Resource Center. Jess, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. We are so excited to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm super excited to be here as well. I have um, been swatting and hopefully I can um, maintain the incredible and wonderful standard that you guys... Swatting? Like a strength, weakness, <laughs> opportunity, threats thing? No, you know when you oh. swat, when you study? <laughs> oh, like SWAT back. Yeah. Oh, God. I don't even want to be taken I've, back to that. Oh. I've, I've actually handwritten some notes, so look out. Oh, my God. That's more than we've done. Take so you over. That's pretty good. Laura, what is SWATting? Like SWAT fact. What does it stand for? No, it's... Um, it's like when you SWAT when you study I actually Googled this recently because we assumed that... Um, my housemates are on SWAT back at the moment. It's like a study period, like when you have a break at uni um, before exams. And we assumed that SWAT would be a uh, an acronym for something, but it is a, an actual word. It comes from... I read the whole thing and I would have had a great answer if my brain was better than a, a goldfish's. We'll, but um, We'll put it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes. But yeah, we're recording on a Monday night, which is weird, instead of a Tuesday morning. I like it. It's a good vibe. Do you reckon it's going to affect... Us? How we sound? No. No? <laughs> I, think Monday still, vibes? I think we'll still sound fantastic. That's good. And also we should mention that we are uh, missing Bianca this week, both, you know, physically in the podcast and also emotionally. But uh, <laughs> yes, um, Jess is, is um, our sort of stand in here and she's doing wonderfully. Thank you. <laughs> yes, indeed. Me, I am rolling a piece of um, chewed gum in my hands because I didn't want to have to get out again to have to throw it away. And then I realized I didn't have any... Um, paper to put it in and I just kind of and I was just having flashbacks flashbacks to school I was just thinking do I put it under the desk I'm like no this is my office and our office it's disgusting but I just realized this is how people that's how it happens thank you I just got to hand it a piece of paper and putting the gum back in there that was such a mum move I really like that (laughs) I write that my my foldy sound um, for confirmation that's a good foldy yeah and we're good if only listeners could see the setup here there's so many there's like laptops and iPads (laughs) and little old school well, mum over here bought a notebook and look, it's already come to fruition. It's beautiful. But yeah, I mean, we should get cracking, shouldn't we? Yes, we should. And Laura, you're going to get us kicked off with your link for the week. Um, where did you find this? What is it about? Why did you pick it? The whole nine yards. All Give right. it to us. I got greedy. I got two links this week. <laughs> One's a quick link. Um, look, 
Uh, basically, um, this is a, a piece from The Cut. Um, the writer, Kelly Connaboy got this brilliant idea from her colleague's nan, um, where I think all good ideas come from. Um, and the idea is that they should turn off the internet for one weekend per month. And uh, I'm, look, I'm not hoping to spur any sort of deep discussion here with this mini link, but I just wanted to say that I fully endorse this idea and I just encourage you and uh, anyone listening, um, hi mum, hi dad, uh, just to sort of imagine for a second how good it could actually be to have like a forced internet hiatus once a month and you know talk to your family or like go outside or something so you mean they the powers that be kind of like an institutional yeah, they, yes, you know right, they, they like the us versus them the men yeah, exactly the right. men. so the man shuts off the internet once a month this is this is a is this an ongoing column from the cut at all i did not get that far it's from nymag.com i don't really fully understand like how and why it exists as a separate channel i mean NY Mag or New York Magazine um, has always had yeah this kind of very um, you know short kind of witty journalism that I that I quite like. I always feel that the, a lot of our subconscious seems to come out of this podcast because most of the things you bring in, Laura, are always about how a, a lot of kind of how to cut down on internet and kind of computer time and things like <laughs> no, that. No, that's are, Bianca. Is it? I've literally never, except for this, brought in an article like that. Bianca is obsessed with cutting her screen time. I feel that this is just a topic that seems to kind of come up like a lot, and I don't know. Like I, I felt it was like trying to be funny, but I at the same time i feel like well i don't i don't get it like is it is this kind of like a serious thing that's like in the conversation again or? not trying to make any sort of intellectual discussion out of it i just liked it as a concept and i think it would be good to be forced to be away from my phone for a few days each month jess what's your internet hygiene like is it something that you kind of you know actively try to maintain or or exercise control over i have zero self-discipline <laughs> when it comes to something like this and i i'm what i do you're is, a big instagrammer <laughs> big instagrammer i'm obsessed with twitter um all the bad ones all the junk food of the internet <laughs> i am there but um so what i try and do is um fool myself in fact that it's healthy spending this amount of time on no the thing i, I thought was interesting about this and that a lot of you know apple and google and a, a lot of them are actually putting this sort of software in their phones because they recognize screen time is an issue but for me it's like is it the amount of time or is it what you're looking at because there's a difference between, you know, the internet and even social media can be enormously helpful for people on some level, as we um, saw, Lara, when we did the project, the Freedom yeah. Calendar, you know, the um, not to go super deep <laughs> straight away when you pulled in something frivolous. But, uh, you know, it, uh, that, that was obviously um, talking about refugees on Manus Island who don't have any voice other than via their social media. So, you know, like there's always got to be one um, earnest person in the corner going, but what about them? But, oh, yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> but obviously, but I agree. I love this concept, though, of and the way that the article was written, super tongue-in-cheek sort of, and I get your point, Jeremy, about did it hit the mark with the humour? But the idea that there would just be an arbitrary um, one weekend a month, no internet, well, I just deal her. with it is kind of funny. I liked it because it made me think about the fact like all these people do these experiments all the time where they're sort of, they are, you know, shutting themselves off from their social media, deleting their apps or whatever it might be, getting dumb phones again. And I just like, I'm just so aware of the fact that like unless I was forced into like a straitjacket away from these things. So like, I'm never going to have the willpower to do this. So the concept was amazing. Well, internet me. now is considered a utility, like water or gas or anything like that. So it's kind of like, yeah, it would be like shutting those things off. And it is a part of our life in that way. Um, speaking of which, there was kind of a second link, Laura, that you brought to the table. Yeah, so my main link today is this article from The Outline. Um, it sort of delves into a series of charts showing YouTube's like 10 most viewed videos each year since 2005, which is when they were founded. Um, and uh, these were originally compiled by by an 
Imger user <laughs> with the handle uh, David JL123, of course, um, well-known guy. And uh, it is, I don't know, it's kind of a striking look at how popular video content has shifted over the past 10 plus years and also how things like the site sort of search algorithms and monetization methods and copyright crackdowns and stuff um, have sort of affected what sort of content climbs to the top. And I, I like I was reading about YouTube and as I got into this deep dark hole here um and i read some crazy stat that like you know 300 hours of video are uploaded to youtube each minute and almost like 5 billion videos are watched there each day which is weird because i just like i feel like i hardly ever use youtube anymore but mm. i guess i'm i'm not the only person this is about um so I, I i don't know like before looking at this list did you guys think that you know since 2007 all of the most popular videos would be music videos that was kind of surprising to me no, I thought, I mean, I don't know any YouTubers, but mm. the fact that that is now like a job title, that <laughs> I thought that that the first few years, yes, might be dominated by music videos because it does make sense that, you know, that's the original mm. kind of social content really. Um, it, you know, uh, MTV back back then, it kind of like that's, that's totally. The, but it's almost the opposite. Like the first few years was actually like all the top content was sort of viral videos created by totally regular users, and then after that, once YouTube started to roll out um, like in video ads and stuff in around two thousand and seven, the vast majority of their top viewed clips have been music videos, yeah. except for Charlie bit my finger, um, which held the top spot for a very brief time in two thousand and eleven before it was. Uh, Classic. Yes, it was surpassed by the, uh, you know, extreme cultural forces that are uh, Baby by Justin Bieber and uh, Gangnam Style by Psy. But Um, isn't this piece about how since they introduced the algorithm that it's been gamed, like, in a way? Mm, Like, that's... And But I didn't understand like how they're gaming kind of the algorithm. Yeah, the article itself was stupid. What I cared only about was that it led me to the graphs, which were, which were interesting. If you go, like, I, I think you need to look at the data itself and not their analysis of it because their analysis was really, really shallow. What did you get out of the graphs? Um, well, for me, I think it was just interesting to see uh, how many of the videos I knew or didn't know. And considering that these are the world's most viewed videos, um, it was also interesting. He, he did sort of create a list of, um, he created a graph of the most viewed videos if you cut out music videos and um, like kids shows, because it seems to be like a crazy amount of kids shows to get watched. I don't know anything about this. And uh, on that, Charlie Bit My Finger is still number one there. Um, in fact, I actually had a look today and in the two weeks since this guy made these graphs, uh, Charlie Bit My Finger has amassed like another 548,746 views, which is crazy. And like, how come I only get like 300 views on my Instagram stories? This is bullshit. Anyway, but like, yeah, I mean, um, Despacito, which I agree is a tune and a half, uh, has over 5 billion views. That's, Are these views from actual people though? Well, that's the thing. Mm. So that's what they sort of they sort of talk about how then YouTube started realizing that a lot of them were sort of like bot views. And I can't claim to know how any of that works, but um, that a lot of the um, view accounts were sort of being manipulated. And they managed to crack down on it in some way, somehow, supposedly. But I really don't know how it works. Well, Jess, you're as someone who um, you know, inside the Sausage factory? Is that the right word? Uh, thanks, you, you, thanks, Jeremy. You get, you get to see how <laughs> see the how sausage, sausage is made. made. Yeah. But I guess that's being in the sausage factory. I don't factory. know that you consider that struggle. Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't work. I always get my metaphors mixed up. But as someone who is, you know, in the meat grinder of advertising in in a different way than, than we are, yeah. I'm. this is my intros get, yeah. Um, how does this kind of thinking happen um, at the top level, like strategically, when you're kind of considering media buys and things like that? Is this something that kind of clients are aware of or that you see at the agency side that people are kind of actively, you know, thinking about when we're when we're kind of making a brief? I think, I mean, the kinds of work that I do um, 
is probably a lot more targeted towards specific audiences. So it's just not just pure viewer numbers. Um, but I think the challenge that um, we've been facing for, for a long time is, it, you know, fr- from a commercial point of view, to actually get someone to watch <laughs> a film is impossible on YouTube. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that the content that succeeds uh, is music videos and is entertainment um, as opposed to commercials. And it also doesn't su- surprise me that the first the, the first kind of um, brand that managed to work out how to make it work for them was Nike because, you know, they're obviously one brand who've always managed to cross entertainment with commerce in a really seamless kind of beautiful way. And there are very few brands who can do that. I'd love to say that um, I have <laughs> done, but, um, you know, possibly my focus is elsewhere. But, I mean, it, it was done by, you know, an Australian um, campaign, Dumb Ways to Die, a few years ago. That's probably the most successful example in Australia of, you know, a brand quite small, you know, Metro Trains actually um, creating a piece of um, content on on YouTube specifically that had a huge global uh, impact. And again, it was, they turned it into a little music video, really. With illustrations done by our very own Julian Frost. Indeed. I mean, I think, yeah, one of the biggest takeaways for me was the the music video aspect of it and also just kind of seeing or hearing especially that, I mean, a lot of directors and so many people in the film industry, especially in advertising, love doing music videos. They're kind of like the editorial design for Mm. illustrators. Like it's kind of like a gateway drug to bigger jobs. Um, But I'm also, I am surprised though that, you know, you had this kind of, um, you had this culture of music videos has had these huge budgets and actually this brings me back to one of my favorite memes of this week that i'm going to post and it says have you ever noticed that the inside of a cheese grater it looks like a classic puff daddy hype williams video set <laughs> oh have my you god seen that, this? that picture is incredible you it, linked it to yeah, me uh, we're going to put this in the show notes it, yeah it, it'll phenomenal. be in the enhanced podcast if you're watching this um, right now <laughs> but um but yeah remember there's just that era and like they, they would spend millions on these videos and you mm. know then obviously with napster and everything else like you know once the bottom fell out and i think we're finding we're kind of coming back to that in a way now that the, people are realizing yeah there is an audience for this and you see people like apple music especially kind of making Mm. these kind of smaller videos on their kind of socials and how that's kind of you know playing into things so yeah really interesting well yeah Yeah. that that, that is an excellent example recent example with fka twigs um the Apple Music yes. video, incredible. And then, of course, on the flip side, you know, um, artists not just making um, music videos as entertainment for the song but actually um, meaning something, having some kind of message. Obviously, This Is America was a great example yeah. of that but also even recently, um, you know, Beyonce um, and uh, the Carters doing their oh, video the in the video. Louvre, yeah. you know, like it, there, it has to work on so many levels now as well for it to well, have that in itself. And I thought... That's kind of funny how, like, talking about how things are coming back around to that sort of, um, you know, music videos being a big creative exploit in themselves. And and when you look at these early graphs, like one of the first sort of big popular videos was the OK Go yeah, um, course, yeah. treadmill clip, which I remember watching on repeat. <laughs> and I still, like, any time they release any video, I'm like, just from a production point of view, I'm like, holy shit. Um, the one they did recently with the printers and all the paper. The with Quran our Quran did, thing, yeah. Oh, my God. Crazy, crazy, mm. crazy. But, I mean, I think... The reason was I, that I again that I liked this piece or these graphs was not even thinking about any of that stuff, but just because of the sort of weird rabbit hole that it drew me into of like early 
sort of weird YouTube comedy that I just didn't even realize I missed in my life. Um, there was that one that um, came up. Do you remember that like, let's get some shoes video? That was the whole thing. <laughs> and Smosh, I was obsessed with them when I was like 12. I remember watching their video of um, their like lip sync to the Pokemon theme song, like on repeat. And I, I mean, clearly we're from different ages here, but this was, <laughs> this was my crack. And, and apparently they're still making videos. It's so weird. They have like over 20 million subscribers now, but I don't know. Love YouTube's it. a weird, dark place and uh, there's good and bad things. Next up, we have my very own link, which comes from It's Nice That. I am very happy that It's Nice That brought back actually their RSS feeds with images because I'm, I'm a huge nerd. I read everything on RSS. And for about three months, it's their true. feed was broken. And I emailed them and I said, your feed is broken and I can't read it. And this is really hard because you're a visual feed. And they brought it back, which is great. Um, and this was published on the 150th. So you spoke to the manager? I, he, I, he's like the male I, nerd equivalent of like, I want to speak to the manager. I was doing them a service. They might not even have known. <laughs> that their RSS feed was broken because I'm probably one of three people who read it. You're a community hero, it. Jeremy. I am. Um, so this piece was a kind of just, a, I mean, it's it's not anything kind of current. It was published um, a few weeks ago because it was 115th birthday of Al Hirschfeld, the noted um, illustrator who worked for most of his career to the New York Times for the New York Times, um, and. The reason I wanted to kind of bring this up is not to really kind of spark any kind of big debate or discussion, but really just to call attention to an artist that had lots of personal significance for me and who I really just forgot about until this article came back up. And it just like brought this flood of memories back. And I think, you know, a few weeks ago, we were kind of talking about um, NC art, which is another kind of pastime. But even before that, I think... Um, the New York Times was, we always got it at our house. Like it was, you know, my dad read it every day. It came in this little kind of blue um, plastic, um, plastic kind of sheet almost. It was really strange. It, ca it came flat. And in every arts and leisure section was an illustration by Al Hirschfeld, um, who was kind of a noted um, you know, he really worked more kind of in arts, theater, and kind of drama um, sections. And this article is great because um, it just it gives you a bit of overview for him as well as some bits that I didn't really know about, including that he drew in the dark, like in shorthand, like while he was because mm -hmm. he, he was having to review these plays, and he would just kind of you know take these kind of notes and then go in back in his pocket. In his pocket, it's really so amazing. But I think one of my favorite things about it is that um, in kind of um, in his kind of early career, he started hiding what was called Nina's in his work, which was little kind of, which was the literal word Nina, which is the name of his newborn daughter at the time. And there would be a little number next to each of his things. And you had to kind of find the Nina's in the illustrations. And they got really hard because of how, you know, the line quality of his work, which was very expressive. Um, and, you know, it had lots of curves and lots of cross hatchings. And, you know, you'd have to find it in there. And I just kind of remember just seeing this. And it was such an early thing for me being exposed to kind of that illustration. And I, you know, the more kind of I look back on my own kind of childhood and see these kind of marks and where I ended up kind of in my profession. I don't know. I think about it as a parent as well, like how everything that you do, um, you know, does have like an impact on you. And I think it's, it's, it, it, it's a reason for keeping art around in our kind of journalism um, that it's really kind of a part of it. And I guess, yeah, I just wanted to kind of bring this up and, and let everyone know about Al's work. Like if, if this is a name that doesn't mean anything to you, it's definitely something that I would really encourage everyone to look up because he's an amazing, um, you know, character he called himself a characterist. He didn't call himself a cartoonist or character mm. artist. He did some amazing work. And I well, thought I like when he's talking about that, they sort of say how he, he didn't want to be referred to as a caricaturist because caricatures are sort of typically um, known for sort of 
being kind of mean, um, mm. sort of uh, critical, critical, exactly, the exaggerating, yeah. um, a sort of generally a negative feature of someone, whether that be um, physical or like part of their sort of behaviour. And he he was trying to be sort of actually sort of really realistically portray the person, not realistically in terms of the the illustration, but in terms of their character. I think, I mean, I loved reading this article and I, and I, it did sort of send me down a little um, rabbit hole for, for a while, just looking at all of his work. And I think for me, the thing that really stood out after visiting a lot of it is the absolute lack of cynicism around celebrity, um, which I just think would be hard to find in a, in a whole body of work for a newspaper illustrator these days. But also just that um, so disciplined as a line artist, but all the character and movement and fluidity that you could get into sometimes quite simple drawings was absolutely stunning. And to me, the thing that I, I you don't necessarily see this level of work as much in newspapers anymore, not because there aren't fantastic newspaper artists it's just that there are less of them and less of us are reading our rolled up newspapers (laughs) but I definitely see uh, a real resurgence in this style in children's books I have a four-year-old and Mm. I think you know we go to the library and get 40 books probably every other day and so I feel I'm quite up to date (laughs) (laughs) and I think there is a real um, especially from a lot of um, American and and possibly um, New York based artist is there is a real comeback for this the the nos- maybe that's nostalgia i don't know but for these expressive illustrations that tell as much of a story as any of the copy that might go with them could i mean yeah and it's it's really just timeless i think this work could easily work right now as mm. much mm. as it did in the 20s and 30s but and he was working for so long absolutely it reminds me of an artist uh, that we work with Nigel buchanan who's got a, like you know who's got this timeless quality of just how he's able to bring these things out from people but also the fact that the editors there were able to kind of humor him with this kind of putting this game into it as well i mean as a kid that kind of gave me a way to engage it that i don't think i would have like if i was at a different age mm. and, and and jess i think you're right it is a very kind of american and specifically new York thing and I'm kind of curious to hear from both of you like are there any artists that are kind of specifically Australian or kind of from your own childhood that you think kind of led you to kind of a career in media and the arts in a roundabout way? I don't, I'm not sure if it led me to a career, but uh, as soon as you kind of, um, as soon as, uh, as soon as you maybe think of that, I thought of, um, Life Be In It, which is going to age me terribly. Oh, no, and no. Larry, probably got no idea <laughs> what I'm talking face. about. But there was this character, Norm, who was, um, it must have been a PSA campaign designed to get people to exercise. Um, and it had a fantastic little song that went with it. And Norm was this animated character. And um, I just, uh, I have instant nostalgia for that. And I loved, you know, without understanding actually what his purpose was, I just found him so entertaining and joyful. And well, that was I, by I just Alex Googled this And I do remember, like, I, I do have like very vague memories of the life be in it line, but not so much of the artwork, which is funny. My brother and I had the seven inch single. Laura, what about you? Is there anything come to mind at all? Yeah, well, I think for me, I mean, this sounds silly and it's probably the same case for like a lot of people. It's not unique in any way, but um my dad is by no means, I mean, he hasn't worked in art professionally, but he's always drawn cartoons, like always, always, always. And like, he used to always like around the 
dinner table would like draw cartoons of our family and he would sort of um, at work he would always get pulled into like drawing cartoons of like all the people in the office and he used to write these really and he's a really funny guy and he's also he's just a, he's a really good drawer um, um, really good cartoonist and so I used to always want to like try and learn and I've never quite grasped it um, but uh, he really got me into things like Garfield and stuff when I was mm. young and I used to just like buy the sort of um, the big big old sort of books of and whenever I saw them in op shops and stuff as well would always buy them and just like read them read them read them and I always liked um, illustration that was comedic like I always I, and I mean that probably says a lot about who I am still today but um that kind of stuff always really drew me and I think it's the humor in the, in, in illustration that allowed me to sort of start to get into art or illustration you know as it is that was the that was the lowered barrier to entry do you have any um examples that we can put in our show notes at all actually yes i've got one that he did of dan and i like last christmas oh can't wait to see <laughs> yeah well yeah i also applaud it's nice that it's nice that for actually kind of um you know publishing this because they're typically a very uk and european focused design mm-hmm. site i'm always kind of seeing like you know a lot of the same people are kind of the same style there so it's really great to see them kind of get out of their aesthetic comfort zone yeah and america just there. doesn't get enough coverage doesn't jeremy damn right <laughs> rounding out our final links for this week um jess lily please tell us what you got well i've uh, like lara been a little bit cheeky and put two on the table but I guess there's one main one, and it's they're from the conversation, which um, is a publication I really like because it often has a bit of an academic slant. In, in fact, I think it mostly does. Um, so it gives you a little bit of a window into the kinds of things that our country's brains trust are focusing on, without the um, snark or you know the need to be sort of um, quite inflammatory with opinions and that sort of thing. And and it often sort of talks about research studies and things like that in art and culture, and, and obviously as a news section as well. And the study that um, I thought was quite interesting to talk to today, especially as we are located here in Collingwood, and we'll get onto that. Mm-hmm. Um, is uh, it's a, a study that a bunch of researchers have done out of um, Western Sydney University, um, looking at uh, the fact that a lot of Sydney artists have been priced out of the city, and um, it's not just living; it's sort of working in the city. A lot of it is to do with studio spaces and availability, and, and a lot of the sort of traditional kind of studio spaces would have been warehouses, and we know the drill that uh, a relatively industrial kind of area. Um, when the industry dies, the artists move in. Um, then that becomes culturally nice <laughs> and they get moved on by real estate. Um, and But it was interesting because I guess the article rounded out with uh, a, a bunch of ideas that, um, that they thought might help to stop this kind of advent of um, – you know, of of artists being priced out of the city and out of city locations. And one of them it talked to was the fact that it, recently in Victoria um, we've um, put in legislation for a, a kind of an arts precinct around South Bank in, uh, where there are already a lot of um, museums and art galleries, but there are also for any development around there now there has to be a component of um, cheap, affordable kind of working space for artists. Um, and I thought that was quite interesting um, especially given that actually in Melbourne a lot of artists are being priced out of rent in our CBD. So if you look at something like Mitchell House, which was traditionally full of young designers and um, artisans, I mean the fact that RMIT is right in the heart of the city and that's where a lot of um, study is done for kind of craft and, and sort of art-based industry like fashion. Um, Mitchell House recently the rent's kind of 
almost doubled, and so a lot of a lot of so the, the 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 profile of the inhabitants there have changed. So it's obviously something that is relevant to cities around the world. And you know, I was just interested to have a chat to you guys about it, given you obviously work with artists every day, um, and you guys are kind of working in an area of Melbourne that probably is exactly the kind of thing that they're talking about in this article. Collingwood was, um, you know, when I used to live here many years ago, it was not very fancy. <laughs> um, and it's certainly more and more Yeah, becoming, then you left and it just got... I know. <laughs> well, now I've moved to Footscray, so I've become one of these people who, <laughs> who inhabits a, 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 you know, a gentrification part of the front of gentrification, but yeah, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts about it. Oof, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's loaded. <laughs> it is really loaded. I, I think you know, reading this piece, I, I was having a lot of conflicting thoughts happening at the same time. I mean, the first thing was in relation to the piece itself. Um, like, I haven't read the conversation much, but I have noticed kind of this uh, their their um their tagline is academic rigor, journalistic flair. But I wasn't, I wasn't finding the former. Like I kind of, I got to the end of this piece. I'm like, this was a great intro. And then I went to like hit the read more button. I realized, oh no, this was the actual kind of article. It seems really obvious that, well, not obvious, but there's kind of th- this whole idea of how gentrification kind of happens. I mean, it's such a complex and rich subject, but also when you look at kind of the facts or kind of see how it's kind of happened, it is, it, it seems to be how things need to grow like Mm. in this way like uh, this whole idea of like yeah how do you how do you kind of spread a population out and obviously there's lots of kind of there's so much kind of political commercial um artistic all these kind of things are just kind of rolled into it and are kind of casualties of it but i also for in terms of this kind of academic rigor that i was expecting in terms of actually hearing more they cite these reports but then they don't really kind of give you much else so i don't feel like i was actually getting really kind of informed on what the what the problem is or kind of like what like all they're kind of like all i kind of felt was they're saying okay you know, artists can't afford to live in the places that they make special, basically. Mm. I really enjoyed the comment section, though. I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> I thought that's where kind of some of the, the the best kind of debate on this kind of happened was because you're actually kind of hearing from people who are, I guess, invested in the topic and might be kind of affected in a deeper way. So, yeah, like, I don't know. And it, it's something that what I... What was in the comment section that you liked? Well, I just like the fact that they were people kind of just, you know, offering kind of suggestions and then kind of getting those kind of suggestions kind of, you know, batted down or saying like, well, this is how we could actually kind of deal with it. Like, I think I just felt that's where the actual quote unquote conversation is actually happening, where it wasn't kind of like, I just didn't feel it was in the article itself. So I don't know, like, I really don't feel like reading this. I was really informed on what this the issue comment, is. I do just have to jump in and say this is phenomenal. The bourgeoisie will continue to buy top-end art for preening purposes, while its subaltern and managerial lick-spittle classes will be progressively decultured as artists move into the shadowlands that are their rightful domain. It's just, <laughs> there's some beautiful stuff. I in like it. the thought of someone <laughs> preening themselves with art, just kind it's of like really. Don't it gets you do better that better every night? There, believe me. Yeah, yeah. Don't you go home and preen yourself with that? Look, I, I have to. I mean, I definitely take on board that point. The conversation. I'm not reading it for sort of really erudite or insightful journalism and I mean the the authors of this piece are the the researchers themselves and I think it's the journalistic flair that I think they might be lacking necessarily the well the headline of the, it is like you know okay artists are leaving here's how to bring them back and then yeah. in the end they kind of just say these are the specific things yeah. that are kind of happening and they just kind of link to the other things instead of actually kind of giving the information and I think look I mean in Victoria I think it, it's it's I've always kind of had this issue with how the con- council's kind of 
are so divided and bureaucratic and like with our own kind of spaces trying to establish our gallery like mm. in different spaces we've come up against this every time where the council knows that artists are kind of fleeing from the from the actual suburbs that they manage because of these issues with affordability but at the same time they're not offering the opportunities that that artists need to manage the bureaucracy of planning and building, which is one of like the biggest barriers to actually kind of establishing art spaces and arts practices. It's knowing it's having the legal knowledge to go through the planning process, to go through the building process. And those are real things that and developers are always going to have the Do you have the money? Do you have the time? Because that's, well, but that's the, the thing. Yeah. It does, you don't need that. It's you just have, you just have to have the kind of the will and the way, and these things are just as important. And I think, but like, because the council, you know, it's kind of just ex like, or like in any kind of bureaucracy. And I've seen this in different States and different countries, because they don't kind of talk together and because it is a giant bureaucracy you don't get these kind of actions but then every once in a while you get these huge projects like the Collingwood Arts Precinct for example mm. which I think is going to you know is setting themselves up for success in this way but that you know I think comes down to someone like Marcus who's running that project who has kind of experience kind of doing that so but then it's kind of it's it's strange as well in that like I guess they're saving space, working space for people. But they, these artists, these people, these artists, these creators still can't afford to actually live anywhere mm. near here. So, A, they're having to travel like however long if they want to work in this space. But also it kind of feels like then they're preserving these spaces so that the sort of uh, class of people who've moved in here who can afford to can enjoy the arts without the people who create it actually being able to live there and enjoy it themselves. I don't know. Well, this is where we find ourselves like, you know, as agents in terms of some of the work that we do and like our biggest thing is kind of establishing kind of value for our artists. But like still the the wage for artists is never going to grow, um, you know, to be you know, where it kind of needs to be. And that's what mm. they're saying. You know, the median artist salary here is $48,000. And where can you live in that? But, you know, even myself, like that's how I ended up in the hills is because I couldn't afford to kind of live, you know, live where I wanted to be, like where everything was happening. But You live in an idyllic haven. It's I, so but, beautiful out there. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, but that's the thing. It's like, and then, you know, where people move and they make, that's the new kind of spot. And then it kind of moves again. It's interesting, the point that you make earlier about, um, you know, having the ability to move mobilise and to, to actually do the work to fight through the bureaucracy because Victoria has, or Melbourne specifically, has done really well in terms of music and legislating to protect music venues from sort of increased, um, you know, um, residential uh, complaints, sound complaints and that well, sort of thing. we're just around the corner from the tote here and I remember all of that. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. But, um, but I guess that they are bricks and mortar venues. They've got such big visibility and so there is an ability, you know, it's, it's quite, it's easy for councils to go okay that's the thing we have to protect whereas you know these are like communities of artists as the, the um article i think a lot of it is um pointing out the obvious but uh, you know, the research that they did was to speak to a lot of artists in Sydney and a lot of them were saying that, you know, the areas that they started working in um, were, were pretty much abandoned and, and they kind of built them up. And then once everyone else arrives, they kind of have to move on. And it's and it's interesting to me, that's the interesting thing, is that there are a lot of individuals who don't have the power or the mobilisation that, for example, that a, a venue, a music venue might have, um, you know, and it, it's worked for Melbourne from a music point of view. We've just been voted, you know, the, do these things even mean anything? <laughs> the, the, the world's live, the live music capital of the world. <laughs> Come when will then. we when will we be the live artist capital of the world <laughs> but i mean i guess that's the really the the crux of this is like are we entitled to live where we want to mm. live or into the places that like you know we have kind of built up in that way mm. i don't know i mean yeah. 
what do you, I don't know. I mean, that brings us actually kind of nicely to a second link that, that was on the conversation as well that related to Mona, the Museum of yeah. Old and New Art in Tasmania. I mean, this is kind of almost taking the inverse approach where you have a you have an institution that was kind of created by one individual, David Walsh, and has brought, I mean, heaps of tourism to mm. Tasmania. And this piece effectively is asking or kind of stating that that these kind of tourism dollars haven't kind of touched the rest of the um the rest of the state and i don't again i kind of didn't really understand the thrust of this like was it were they kind of saying that they need to do more what were you what did you i think that um this one was my um my only upshot of that is of this one is stop and shop in glenorchy when you go to mona (laughs) (laughs) glenorchy is the suburb um the immediate suburb um surrounding mona and it still um exists in the i think it was like what does it like ranked as one of the nation's most disadvantaged suburbs out of uh, eighth most disadvantaged out of 29 municipalities. Yeah. So I think that the point of this um, article, as far as I understood it, was um, the Mona effect is has been really positive for the museum itself, for um, venues in Hobart that were already geared for tourism, for property in terms of short-term let- letting, but in terms of um, it kind of leaching into the streets and suburbs surrounding Mona Zero. Zilch. <laughs> and again, this is an area that I felt the comments was really informative yeah. because it actually brought up um, some activities that David Walsh, the owner of Mona, has done like in the rest of Tasmania that might not have been that apparent. Mm. I was a bit disappointed that wasn't kind of included in the article. But also, like, yeah, I think this kind of does bring up a bit of a... I guess, a cultural rift between my American side and my Australian side, (laughs) where I kind of feel like this article saying like, yeah, like how it's like, he's done this amazing thing. How come he's not even doing more for everyone everywhere? (laughs) I was like, what do you want him to do for you? Like, he's already done so much. And I think, you know, like what responsibility does, you know, how you feel, Jeremy? (laughs) Well, but I, but, you know, I look at kind of things as, well, I mean, I guess there is a certain kind of shift in perception that I would have. It's like when, if you look at something kind of like Dia Beacon, for example, or these Mm. other areas, like in the States, for example, example where mm. the, these huge arch precincts were kind of established and how but maybe that kind of piggybacked off of kind of an existing vibe that was kind of already there but again you couldn't put dia beacon in manhattan because it needs space mm. and so that's the thing it's like you know you go to the areas that provide the most kind of fertile ground for you know for realizing kind of your visions in that way and i think that i guess here's one of the tr- tricky divides is that like well do the people that, that are kind of surrounded or the communities that surround that area, do, are they now, do they feel empowered to kind of explore new opportunities because this kind of exists there? Or is the education, you know, not there that lets people know that this kind of viable opportunity and there is this kind of new audience that can be reached in lots of different ways, kind of commercially and creatively. And I kind of feel that like the people around there should be kind of maybe doing a bit more because the kind of this thing is now here rather than expecting people just to go to the suburban shopping mall, which is the whole reason they're in you know Mona to begin with because they want to get away from that. Yeah, I mean that's what a lot of the comments are saying. Like all the people from Tasmania who are reading this are like, why would anyone yeah, exactly. go to Glenorchy? There's nothing there but big W. Uh, my favorite comment again, just have to pull out, is just says, I laughed at this. <laughs> it was a bit of a stretch. Um and you're absolutely right. Who is it on to actually, you know, it's been going for a number of years now, long enough for um 
anyone to pick up the slack or to try and reroute people or to, to understand, okay, we've got a lot of visitors for this cultural reason. You know, the Mona effect is that people are now coming here because they're interested in this experience and something new and something different and they will travel for it. You know, how can we capitalise on that rather than sort of bitching and Mona-ing? <laughs> that was good. Oh. Far My out. Doesn't get better than that. Done. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's funny. Like it's a funny little, it's a funny publication, um, the conversation. It is very quirky in those kind of um, blurting out kind of sort of semi-ideas and just um, here you go, what do you think kind of thing. I think it's an interesting format for a publication. Yeah. I think like I don't know if it's – I don't I, I don't understand if it's deliberate to spark these kind of conversations in the comments, but from a design perspective, that doesn't appear that way. It appears much more as a, as a kind of afterthought rather than part of the article. But look, I really kind of enjoyed reading these two articles. There, there was something that really just kind of gave me a lot of – a lot of thought in terms of how kind of, you know, creativity and place um, is defined. And I think with, you know, with what's happening at the moment, like everyone kind of wants to find, you know, a safe place in the world, like whether you're a refugee or whether you're an artist kind of, you know, looking for a space to create, like, you know, everyone has these kind of base needs. Obviously, they're different in different kind of countries. But yeah, we're, um, we're in a very kind of changing atmosphere in many, many situations. So it's definitely something good to continue thinking about. So thanks for bringing it to the table, Jess. We will put the links to all of these pieces on our show notes as we do every week. And I just want to give another big thank you to Jess for coming out and sharing these with us. Jess, where can people find out more about you if they want to either hear your show? Can you tell us, can you plug your show here, actually? Oh, well, I mean, I do um, shows on Triple R. Unfortunately, I'm sort of working pretty much full time at the moment. So um, I can't manage a permanent show. So I, I just pop up every now and then. I just sort of slide on into the airwaves whenever I can find a spare few. Hours, <laughs> um, but I but I would uh, commend anyone to listen to public radio at any point, anyway, whether it's me or someone probably far more knowledgeable than myself. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm in the usual places, such as <laughs> oh god, I, I have to go. Well, I'm on LinkedIn. No, um, uh, yes, I'm online. If you go to LinkedIn, you can find my website, uh, Freedom Calendar. You can look up. There's a project that I recently did with Lara. It's online at freedomcalendar.org. And you're on the toots? Say that again. I'm sorry, what? The toots. That's what you call Twitter, the toots. <laughs> uh, who calls Twitter that? Oh is this the same God. day that are going to shut the internet off? <laughs> cool people. Oh. The toots. The toots. The toots. Oh, wow. I'm on the toots. I'm at Lily Jess, L-I-L-L-E-Y. No, Lily Juice. Look, <laughs> yeah. I can't even remember. No, I know that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know that thing where you started your Twitter profile when you just thought it was all dumb and hilarious? And mm-hmm. <laughs> now it's like, I'm pretty oh, sure God. my Reddit username is like PatMoreDogs29 or something. <laughs> and like and now I'm just like stuck with it. Yes. Can't wait to look these up. <laughs> Well, ending the show as we are trying to do most recently, switching things around from having a whinge to thumbs up, thumbs down, having a thumbs up. Do you have something to endorse, something to complain about? Here's a space where we can do it. Laura? Yeah, no, I only complain. That's, all, that's what I come here for. <laughs> what do you, you got for this? us? Um, I just would like to sort of blanket complain about the Logies um, <laughs> because I don't care about the Logies. Can you just fill, us, can fill our international guest from yeah, for in, our, what the Logies are? For our international listeners, the Logies are something that you really shouldn't pay any sort of mind to. Um, what? Okay, what are the Logies named after? Because it always sounds like the Logies when I first heard of it. <laughs> all I can imagine was a statue of like a big ball 
of phlegm. Like what? Oh, ne- that never came to mind. That's basically a big ball of phlegm. Yeah. It's uh, it's the sort of awards uh, that celebrate sort of Australian television. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like a really shit Golden Globe. Oh yes, <laughs> and it's sponsored and organised by the magazine TV Week. Oh god. Uh, yes, um, and it's been sort of going since like 1959. But it's anyway. It's uh, it's. Awful, 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 and it is basically the Australian version of the Oscars, but like D grade, um, F grade, <laughs> H grade, uh, and it's horrible. And I um, I bought, I was up in uh, on the coast in the weekend, and I wanted to do some Sunday crosswords, and I bought a newspaper, and I. <sighs> feel like sad admitting this but I bought the Herald Sun because they have like a really good puzzle section on a Sunday and then I thought well I may as well read the paper because I've got you know I did the puzzles and I may as well read it and the whole newspaper because I have to point out like news in the title was just Logie's stuff that's not news that's not news and the Logies hadn't even happened yet anyway Anything else to complain about or are we done here? <laughs> you know, the, the, I was living in London for quite a few years and the first year I came back, which kind of been, wasn't that long ago, it was like 2013 or whatever, I came back just before the Logies um, and like my, my reintroduction to Australia, I turned it on and they still had at that point – like, like I'm, I'm stressing here. This was only a couple of years ago. They had a podium that span around, and all oh. the women had to get up on that podium oh, and spin around while they talked about their dress we on do the red that when carpet. We come to work each morning. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> Jess, you have anything else to add to the mix? Okay, I'm going to do a thumbs up. Yes. Oh, um, and this, I just realised, I was, I've already said that when I realised, oh gosh, this is an international audience, so it's probably yeah. meaningless to anyone. But um, I have uh, earlier this year moved to Lara's uh, side of town, yeah, to the west, west is best, Footscray. Footscray. Probably gentrifying the area. Yes, 100% <laughs> gentrifying the area. My apologies, Footscray. Um, and uh, we ha- are obsessed every weekend, it's sometimes twice a week. There's a we have to visit the cannoli shop. <gasps> Tea Cavallaro and Sons yes, Ooh, on Barclay Street. These dudes still have on their website um, proudly. No, it's like what other local baker can say they've catered the Olympics, <laughs> and it's like the 1956 Melbourne Olympics. <laughs> Hey, that's a pretty good claim to fame. Actually, so it is the best cannoli, ricotta cannoli I've ever eaten. I didn't even know ricotta cannoli existed, oh but I'm it's, 100 it's obsessed with it. genuinely life-changing. And I know that I'm known for exaggerating this podcast, but it's genuinely life-changing. What did you do differently after you <laughs> ate this cannoli that you didn't before? Well, I could probably die now and I'd be fine. <laughs> Seriously, and my parents would probably just be like, you know what, it's okay that she's dead because she she lived. And um, the beautiful Emma Leonard, who's one of the lovely artists on our roster, brought us a whole box of the tea Cavallaro and Sons ricotta cannoli recently, and uh, Jeremy couldn't eat any of them. Could not. But I kindly ate your portion for you. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. Anytime, Always taking one for the team. Um, I, have, I have a mix thumbs up and thumbs down. So I have a <laughs> thumbs up for the um, amazing documentary that I saw this weekend on SBS On Demand, uh, The Fourth Estate, the New York Times documentary. And it just makes me want to go into different rooms and, you know, set up a <laughs> phone call, like on speakerphone. It's like they have that. That's the one thing I know is like New York Times is amazing speakerphone system. Um, but my thumbs <laughs> yeah, down. That's the, that's the key thing to take away. That was the key takeaway. <laughs> Um, but my thumbs down is, it, it, I don't know if anyone else noticed this, like in the Washington Bureau, there are sirens all over everyone's desk. At one point, there's, <laughs> they're talking in front of a box of unopened sirens. There are, there are blue sirens and there's red sirens. And 
They never explain what these <laughs> sirens are for. And it's I just thought it was the most hilarious thing because like it's such an obvious thing. It's they're there in like every shot. And it was like, surely they're not gonna get to the end of these like this five hours of journalism without explaining what the <laughs> sirens are, and they didn't. So okay, it, I, if you know what these sirens are, one of our thousands of listeners listens to this every week, please tell me. I'm very curious. I will talk about it next week. And that is my thumbs up, thumbs down. Just I want to add to that really quickly, yes, just because you brought up the New York Times. Um, while I remember one of my favorite Twitter feeds ever is called Editing the Great Lady. It's one that Penny mm. Modra introduced me to, and they basically just highlight any sort of the any changes text changes um in the news on the main page of the new york times basically and it's, it's just really interesting Ooh. to see how they adjust their headlines and stuff throughout the day based on like different information coming in or just edits or whatever it's really cool very interesting thank you so much lara thank you jeremy thank you jess thank you lara and thank you jeremy our pleasure This has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Jackie Winter Gives You the Business is a weekly podcast about creative project management and production and just making things happen in general. Our producer is a regional. You can find the Jackie Winter Group mostly on Instagram at Jackie Winter. That's Jackie with a Y and Winter like the season. And you can email us with any recommendations, feedback, questions, or comments, or answers to the New York Times siren riddle at podcast at JackieWinter.com. We're also on Stitcher as well as Spotify now. To receive all the links we talk about on the show each week in one neat little email, you can sign up to our podcast-specific newsletter at tinyletter.com slash Jackie Winter, and archives of all of our shows and show notes can be found at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz. Our theme music is by Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check him out at SoundCloud.com slash Jackie Winter, or many, as one of the many live shows in the live capital, live music capital of the world. <laughs> In Melbourne. In Melbourne. <laughs> if you love what you hear, you can really help us out by subscribing to iTunes. Give us a comment as well. It helps other people find the show. Details again on our website at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.